Striving for mediocrity in a world of excellence, this is The Chaser Report. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report. It is Monday the 27th of December 2021 and we are still here putting out new episodes, Charles Firth and Alex Avulovic. We are insatiable. We sat in a room and recorded a whole bunch of intros, but that's because we want you to have new episodes mm. every single day of the year in case you're really bored and miss us. Can we just get to the interview? Yes, this is a great one. Uh, David Kilcullen, uh, oh, one of the great. world's most renowned experts, a genuine quality expert um, who worked with you know the Obama administration and so on, on Afghanistan. He explains oh. how the Taliban won and stormed Kabul because no one thought that they would, and he explains it all. And if that's not satisfactory, Tucker Carlson had a pretty good explanation too. But. <laughs> we'll go with Kilcallen right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Like an awful lot of us, we were trying to figure out what on earth was going on in Afghanistan. We don't really understand what went wrong with the whole idea was stupid to begin with, but someone who really understands this is David Kilcullen. He's an Australian counterinsurgency expert, formerly with the US State Department. His latest book is The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learnt to Fight the West, and that certainly happened here. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Were you surprised that Kabul fell so quickly? Yeah, I was actually, and I'll be honest, I, I'm on record in writing saying it would be a stretch to imagine the Taliban capturing Kabul anytime soon. Um, I was totally dead wrong on that. So I'm officially getting out of the prognostication business. Um, so we really shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, David. It's been lovely be talking, talking to you. To you. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you, look, I think it's worth mentioning why I was um, wrong on it, right? Mm. I made the assumption that the international community would not just completely blow off the Afghans with no moral compunction and just let them hang. And that's exactly what happened, right? The Taliban took Kabul with a very small force. We did nothing. We we didn't, not one airstrike, not, not even a harsh tweet, right? Um, you know, President Biden came out on Saturday night and basically said, yeah, it looks like the Taliban have won. That's what made, it wasn't Biden's fault, but that's what made the, the Afghan army just evaporate because they realized they were being sold out and there was no need to fight. And, you know, I, I just could not credit Maybe I live in a different moral universe from politicians, but I just couldn't credit that we would really let this just ha- happen. Um, so, you know, that I own that. That's that's why I, I called it wrong. I thought that if it came to that point, we would actually shake ourselves off and do something. But we just we've let it happen, and frankly, we're still letting it happen on the ground. And a lot of people have sort of blamed the Afghan forces. There's sort of there's lots of videos going around on Twitter and Facebook of them not being able to do star jumps and, and things like that, like just sort of humiliating those forces. Is that in any way true or is that just as a way to sort of defect blame from the Western forces who are withdrawing? Uh, it is it is a matter of deflecting blame, but it's actually worse than that. This is victim blaming, right, of the worst kind. Um, the I mean, I've, I've worked with the Afghan military for years, Um yeah, they're not a West. They're not a Western first world military, right? Noted, right? But um, they have lost five thousand soldiers killed 
every month for the last five months fighting the Taliban. They've been desperately fighting to survive. They've been losing. And the reason they've been losing is we fucking pulled their air support and their maintenance and their logistics and their intelligence support in May uh, after promising them for a decade that we would never do that. It's like, you know, the game Jenga. It's like we have a stack of Jenga blocks and by design, four or five of them are American Jenga blocks and we just whipped them out, right? Well, what are you going to do? Blame them that it collapsed? Of course it wasn't going to collapse. Um, and I, even as, long, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, Afghan friends that I was talking to could not believe that the US was really going to do this. And um, frankly, as I said, neither could I. Um, but uh, we saw it coming at the last minute and it, um, you know, it, Australia, the last combat casualty we had in Afghanistan was 2013. The last combat casualty of the Americans was end of 2019. We've been doing this thing on the cheap with a small number of people. The Afghans have been doing the hard yards. Um, We couldn't even sustain our little bit um, as an international community. And now they're going down the gurgler. And frankly, you know, it makes me ashamed. Joe Biden said just a short while ago that there was no way of the US leaving without chaos ensuing. From what you're saying, it sounds as though that was wrong. Yeah, you think? I mean, no, he said he said that. And then Tony Blinken at one point said, I can't imagine a situation in which, uh, you know, it's a collapse between Friday and Monday, right? Well, it wasn't a collapse between Friday and Monday. It was a collapse between Friday and Sunday afternoon, right? So all those guys were way off base. It was wishful thinking, right? They wanted to leave. They didn't want this to happen. It's like, like if I don't look at the snake, it's not going to bite me, you know? And I think there was just a huge amount of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, right? I'm almost like catatonic, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. It reminds or, or was me. It, of- or was it more cynical than that? Was it actually a bit intentional? I mean, was it negligent or was it actually, like it, it sounds to me like no one could have, could have done this without sort of knowing that that's what was going to happen. Right. I mean, there, there are two. Well, so, of course, this is America, right, where I'm living here. So everything's political. Everything's partisan, right? you got Tucker Carlson on one side and Rachel Maddow on the other, and there's no middle ground where people are actually talking about um, the reality, you know? And so just to sort of as a as an Aussie in America, my point would be, yeah, it's Biden's fault. It's also Trump's fault. It's Bush's fault. It's Obama's fault. You can trace this all the way back. And it's the Afghans' fault, right? They, they bear a significant measure of blame in terms of Afghan political leaders and, and commanders who change sides and so on. There's plenty of blame to go around. Um, but it is absolutely clear that we knew this was going to happen. Um, we, uh, you know, the Intel community was, was saying it could collapse within a month, right, mm. last week. So even they were caught by surprise by the speed. In retrospect, it seems pretty clear that it was going to accelerate as it collapsed for reasons of, you know, it's a complex system. As it collapses, that collapse gets faster. Um, we sort of know that in theory, but there was just a lot of, um, yeah, wishful thinking, right? And I, I don't know that I wouldn't want to go so far as to say it was intentional. It might be even in some ways worse than that of just not caring, right? Like, mm. you know, caring more. I'll give you one little anecdote. On, on Sunday, sorry, on Monday, as the evacuation is kicking into high gear, there are clusters of civilians located uh, about two miles from the uh, the airport who needed to be lifted by helicopter because the entire road in between them and the airport was flooded with Taliban. US political leaders wouldn't approve that because they didn't want the imagery of helicopters taking off 
like for the Vietnam War, right? And it's like, guys, people are going to fucking die. You know, and you were worried about the imagery on Twitter. The photo op. It was yeah. the, the problem. That was a bad photo op. So instead, we had the photo op of the all the desperate people at the airport. I'm just wondering. We yeah, spent. It puts, it puts Trump's photo op in front of that church, uh, in perspective. It right? does. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a Trump fan, but you know, if you're going to be yeah, anyway, yeah. We spent 20 years, just about. We spent trillions of dollars trying to win this war. How are the Taliban still so strong? I mean, constantly we were told senior leaders had been killed. That they were, you know a shadow of their former selves. Clearly they weren't. So who are these people who've just won this war? Well, the very senior leaders are the same as the original guys. And one of the great ironies on Sunday was that it was the negotiation between Abdul Ghani Barada, who's the sort of head political guy in the Taliban, and Hamid Karzai, the former president, and they sat down and did the deal. Almost exactly 21 years ago, 20 years ago, in uh, December of 2001, Hamid Karzai, and Abdul Ghani Barada sat down together and negotiated the surrender of the Taliban in Kandahar. It's the same actual dudes, right, 20 years later, having that conversation. At the lower level, they are very different. So young, much more radical, much more capable. Um, we've put in the short answer, and I, we could spend all day talking about this particular question, but the short answer is we didn't really want to win and we put enough pressure on them to make them better but not enough to destroy them. And that improved them over time, like mm. sort of breeding a, a better class of, of jihadists. Yeah, like a Delta so variant of, of Taliban. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, gosh. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so what were their tactics? Like how did they take out each town? Like- so super smart, right? So they're, they're a small guerrilla group. They've got limited assets. Um, they th- There's two general plans um, that, or general approaches they took. I wrote about this a couple of months ago. Like it's been obvious to us, it's, but it, we didn't realize it was going to succeed so well. The they would go and sort of partially surround a village or a, a district center, um, and they would then send in an elder from the local community that's known to the garrison, and he would say, "Guys, the Taliban have got you surrounded. They are going to fucking kill you all, or they're leaving an opening. If you hand over your weapons and your ammo, they'll let you go home." Um, and Increasingly, garrisons were doing that because they weren't getting air support. They weren't, weren't getting food. They were running out of ammunition. They knew if they got injured, there was no way to evacuate them to a hospital. So when the Taliban comes up and gives you an opening, you go, yeah, okay. And also there was kind of a network effect, right? So if there's nine garrisons in a district and five of them flip, well, okay, you can fight on if you want to, but it's, it's not going to make any difference at this point, right? So people were changing. So they applied that method at the district level um, for months, then they began to apply it in the last week or so at the province level. And same technique, bigger scale. Instead of the local garrison commander, they're talking to the province governor or the mayor, and people were just flipping left and right. You, you saw that on the news. Some even changed sides, right, and joined the Taliban. And then for Kabul, they were planning to do the same thing, right? So they basically partially surrounded Kabul, paused, um, and then Bereda flew in, met with Karzai. And I think the army was ready to fight and probably would have fought and their problem was a lot easier because they're just defending one area. But by the time the military guys on the front line heard that the politicians are busy selling you out in the presidential palace, they're like, all right, we're done, right? And the whole thing fell over. So that's one strategy. The other thing is um, six or eight weeks, they've been fighting for Kandahar and Helmand, which are two big towns in the south, uh, sorry, uh, two big provinces in the south. And the 
guts of the Afghan military was basically destroyed in trying to save these towns to the point where when they flipped and started going north, the cover was bare. There was nothing they could do. Um, I mean, we, we have spent 20 years systematically underestimating the Taliban and they've just for the 10th time proved that, you know, they're a lot better, I mean, more, more capable than we give them credit for. So to your point, there was no way of doing this without stepping things up another surge perhaps, or at least air support. Uh, uh- Actually, actually, no, they were holding their own with the air support that they had mm. in place. It would have been a surge of airstrikes rather than a surge of troops. We would, I think putting more troops in was a non-starter. Uh, would, probably wouldn't have made a difference right at that point. But if we hadn't have cut off the, um, the air support and the maintenance and all that, they would have been able to continue flying their own aircraft and then we could have been calling in strikes. Um, there. I'd say three big missteps, right? Pulling the air out giving up Bagram, which is a second air base, right, which meant we, planes were flying 16-hour round trips from the Middle East to just do 40 minutes over Afghanistan, right? That's not an act of war. Um, and then um, the other big one was uh, when it became clear that the Taliban were really closing in on Kabul. They could have run some really heavy, like, B-52 strikes and not killed civilians because it would have been concentrations of Taliban outside the cities, by that point, we were, I think, morally defeated, and we we just let it go. And and you say we've consistently underestimated the Taliban. Does that extend to governing? Like they've been fighting for twenty years. Will they be any good at governing? Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Afghanistan, you probably have a sort of CNN media version of the Taliban in your head. So just to be clear, Taliban have a very sophisticated legal system. 15 regional courts that deliver free legal judgments, don't take bribes, and are much quicker than the government courts. They have a tax system, um, three different kinds of tax. They build roads. They sponsor um, small business projects. They skim money off of the um, local businesses and put that money to tax projects, um, or to, sorry, to, to public works projects. They control... Um, entrance and exit ports points into Afghanistan and they take um, uh, customs and excise money. That was another part of their strategy was to knock off all the external border crossings and then start taking that money. Um, they're just an extraordinarily sophisticated guerrilla governance structure. Mm. The question is, will they be able to flip that now to running the state? I think they might be able to. And just one datum point, on Monday, almost the first thing they did was hold an international investment conference where they got <laughs> investors on the phone and wow. said, we want, we want direct foreign investment, we want aid, we want the IMF money, tell us what we need to do, we're going to work with you, international community. I mean, you know, these guys are not the Taliban of 2001. Yeah. Who, you know, tortured the former president by all accounts and were very, very brutal in all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of horror stories from back then. How optimistic still- can we be? <laughs> They're still brutal, mate, but they're just smart enough to keep it off television these days. So you still think the rapes or the killings continue? Yeah, it's happening now. We, I'm, I'm getting reports from people on the ground all the time of it. Um, you know, people getting, women getting shot uh, just overnight for wearing um, too immodest clothing, people getting beaten to death. Um, I won't even inflict it on you, but there's, they're, they're still doing it. But it's junior commanders, right? It's pretty deniable. They're not doing the gratuitously grotesque stuff like, you know, castrating the former president Najibullah and hanging him from a lamppost, which is what you're referring to. Yeah. They're keeping it on the down low, right? So what they do is they use violence and coercion quietly to gain control while trying to portray themselves as, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for to the international community. 
Yeah, because their spokesman came out and said some fairly reasonable sounding things about, you know, no revenge, it's all going to be fine, and potentially women still being able to engage in education and work the way that they had before, and women have been very integrated into the economy from what I understand in the past 20 years. Is that just talk? Um, Well, it's hard to know, right? So it may be that it's a short-term chaotic phase and they get control and that that top-line thing um, becomes reality. Taliban have been saying for years that they're okay with women's education, and I do think that at some level they mean it, but they they mean women's Islamic education, right, and that's what they mean for men as well. Um, They haven't yet shut down female journalists in Afghanistan. That might be temporary, but they haven't. Um, so they, they are doing some things differently from last time. And of course they're letting people watch television, which wasn't a thing, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but at the same time, and I'm not going to get into detail for obvious reasons, but friends of mine are getting hunted house to house by Taliban death squads that are trying to find and kill certain people that worked for the government, um, including some prominent women, um, members of the intelligence service, uh, people that worked for the government. And, uh, so it's like a, you know, it's like a good cop, bad cop, right? And it's like you you knuckle down under ta- Taliban governance and an eight, well, it's not going to be as bad as you think, or we are going to cut your head off on television. Uh, not on television, right? We're going to cut your head off. And that's like, I, I you know, they they are better than Islamic State. I'll give them that, right? But that's, that's not much of an endorsement. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And so, will they end up getting international recognition? Do you think? But- uh, if I was to guess, I would say yes. And the reason I say that is because the Russians have already said that they are watching the situation closely and if the Taliban behave responsibly, they will recognise them and get them some aid. The Chinese de facto recognised them on the 28th of July when a whole Taliban delegation led by um, Mullah Barada went to Tianjin outside Beijing and met with Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, and they basically, they've never had a public meeting with these groups before and they effectively gave them de facto recognition. So, I and, you know, the Chinese want to incorporate uh, Afghanistan into the Belt and Road structure, which would give them mm. some economic leverage over uh, the Taliban. I think these powers are saying, okay, Americans have learned their lesson, hopefully. Um, let's try to apply different forms of leverage to moderate some of their behaviour. Whether that works or not, uh, well, as I said, I'm getting out of the prognostication business. <laughs> and what's the West's moral obligation from here? I mean, 20 years of stuffing things up in many ways, lots of civilian casualties, but it's clear that for some people life was a lot better for the past 20 years. How do we play things from here? It, it has been a lot better. Um, I, so I think there are two things that um, we need to do. Uh, one of them is we need to put the Afghans and their well-being first, right? That means we have to hold the Taliban to account and we have to pressure them and possibly kill a few, right, depending on the circumstance, in order to protect the population. But it also means that we shouldn't just artificially keep the war going because we're embarrassed about losing, right? And I am worried that that's going to happen. Like, we have lost this war. We've been defeated, right? The Taliban are in control. They're holding peace talks right now. Um, People have been looking for an end to the war for 20 years. This is an end to the war if we want to take it, right? It's unpleasant. You don't want to negotiate 
with the Taliban. But, you know, I'm sure the Nazis didn't want to negotiate with the Western allies in 1945 either. But when you lose a war, that's what you have to do. I'm worried that I'm seeing indicators like the US is trying to freeze all of Afghanistan's money so the Taliban can't have it. Um, I'm worried that um, like the IMF is talking about not uh, not allowing them to have the, the money that's been committed. Uh, there's a whole bunch of guys still fighting up in the Panjshir Valley. I think we need to we need to let the Afghans figure out what to do about that and not just say, right, we're back to the 90s, so let's keep on back in these, these Mujahideen. That may be the answer, but it, it needs to be the Afghans who come up with that. You know, radical idea, right? We should actually let the Afghans have a say in, in what happens to their country instead of uh, continuing to treat it like a, a colony. We got in there in the first place after 9-11 and it made a lot more sense than Iraq because that's where Al-Qaeda actually yeah. were in that region. <laughs> so the justification actually made sense, which is not taken for granted when it comes to US foreign policy. Um, will this then mean a resurgence of terrorism or do you think the Taliban understand that um, that's a, a line that they can't cross without um, repercussions? So actually, yes to both of those, right? <laughs> so um, on the invasion in, in 2001, it's not the same as Iraq, right? Iraq was based on what turned out to be wrong intelligence. It was a distraction from the main war on terrorism. It was a complete fiasco. You know, we can go there if you want a bit. You know, it was horrible. But massive global opposition, right? Everybody from the Pope onwards opposing it. In 2001, the invasion of Afghanistan, NATO, the UN, uh, vast majority of the international community supported an intervention. What happened was we got in there, we overthrew the Taliban. Hamid Karzai, actually, in that meeting I was telling you about before, said, right, we've defeated these guys. Now we have to make peace. Let's get them in a room. Let's talk about it. And Donald Rumsfeld said to him, we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? So that, that we, did, we never actually bothered to make peace in 2001, right? Mm. Like once they were defeated, we treated them like they didn't exist anymore. That's why it all came back. So I think there's, there was big problems in 01, but the invasion itself was, was not, you know, the, the big problem. Um, so to the other point. Yes, there will be a massive surge in terrorism. Yes, the Taliban won't, I think, will, will realise they can't cross that line. So how do those you square that circle? Um, the Taliban know that, and they've actually been, I first had my converse, first conversation with Taliban maybe 2006. They've been consistently saying this for 15 years, and I, I believe they're sincere, that they will not allow Afghanistan to become a safe haven or a base for an attack on the international community. I do think they'll stick to that, if only because they realise that that would be the one thing that might bring the international community back, right, and would certainly cut them off from aid and all that. So I think they've got a strong incentive not to do that. But it's also a boost to 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 terrorism worldwide because it's a massive, it's just a massive morale boost, right? Every jihadist on the planet must be feeling 10 feet tall and bulletproof today, right? Because the, you know, little ragtag Taliban showed that they could defeat a nuclear armed superpower more powerful than any other country on the world by just sticking at it, being persistent, believing in themselves, continuing the fight. And everyone's like, holy shit, if they can do it, you know, we can do it too. And I think what we're going to see is a big spike in terrorism as it just it just in, in, you know, energizes uh, everybody. We saw this with the fall of the... Uh, near fall of the Iraqi government in 2014 when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared the caliphate in Mosul and that led to like a six-year spike of, of terrorism. So the irony here is I know where President Biden was coming from. He wanted to end the war on terror. Ironically, by the way we've done this, we've given such a boost to jihadists that we've probably given ourselves another decade of it. We've just started it all again, right? Um, 
So I think it's been a massive own goal. And again, that's not a partisan political statement. Whoever happened to be in the White House when this happened, uh, it would have been the same. So do you think maybe, like given that, well, you had like Korean War, bit of a tie, Vietnam War, pretty much lost, First Iraq War, bit of a stalemate, Second Iraq War, I suppose one in a sort of way. Like, don't you think that the US is just very bad at war and perhaps should get out of the whole war business? Yeah, look, there's a whole, I mean, I wrote about this in my book, actually, in great detail, as you probably know, but, um, and there's a whole industry of, of pundits talking about it. But um, I think the US is really, really good at battle and really, really bad at translating battlefield success into peaceful outcomes that favour them, right? So, you know, JFC Fuller, right, a famous British general of the 20th 20th century, doesn't get read about much because he happened to be pro-Nazi in the Second World War, but whatever. Um, so he he once said, you know, channeling St. Augustine, that the, the, the object of war is not victory, it's a better peace, right? Better meaning more advantageous, you know, more stable, whatever. That US is great at winning things on the battlefield, but they really suck, and so do we, actually, at translating. We're better than them, but they, they do suck at translating that battlefield success into um, enduring, you know, sustainable peace. I mean, and refusing to navigate to negotiate with the Taliban in 2001 is a great example of that. And we've talked we- a lot about the US, David, but what's Australia's role in all of this? We seem to have done a worse job in the US of organising the evacuation. Um, what can we well, learn from I, this? I would... I would, I would dispute that a little bit. I think we did a much better job in evacuating our own people. We saw the writing on the wall some time ago. We pulled the embassy out um, a couple of months ago. We've been working pretty hard to get our special visa people out. But the problem that Australia's had is uh, Tarankout and Uruzgan province, the, the, the capital and the province where we used to work mostly, that fell to the Taliban quite a long time ago, right? So the ability to actually get in there and get people out has been just really bad. Um, so there's, you know, there's some, there's some, a bit of an excuse there. But I'll, yeah, I'll make it, it, because we sorry. did a podcast. Sorry, I uh, worked on another podcast uh, a couple of months ago, and one of the fascinating stories was that the the Australian government was requiring all these people who were completely eligible that worked alongside the military, the Australian military forces. Um, but they were requiring them to take their paperwork with them to mm-hmm. Kabul um, in order to be able to apply to get uh, Australian right. help. And that was putting them all at risk because right. by having this paperwork, it was sort of like painting a, yeah, painting a target, target on their back. There's, there's a way around that. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but if you want to have me back sometime, I'll tell you about it when the dust settles. There's ways to do yeah. that, that. We're doing that right now. I don't, I don't want to talk about it on the air. Yeah. While it's still happening, um, but yeah, we we did well. We Australian government um, did do that, but so did every other government, right? In the areas where we've been bad, I think we've been about as bad as everybody else. But we have been better in in some ways. But can I just say we we are conflating a lot of countries are conflating protecting and securing Afghans that are going to be killed by the Taliban if they're not helped with resettling those people in our countries, right? And that's why we're doing this ridiculously detailed visa processing of people on the airstrip in Kabul and planes are flying out nearly empty because they're not processing anyone fast enough to get them through. Just get them the fuck out, right? And when they're on the ground in like Qatar or somewhere else, then we can do that processing. You think you, you mentioned Vietnam before. Um, you know, the way they did it in Vietnam was they pulled people out to Guam 
they processed people on Guam, so they had them in a safe location, and then they resettled them where they needed to go, right? And I, I think we, we, there's a, a problem in the way we're even conceptualizing what this is. First, we've got to stop them getting killed, right? Then we figure out yeah. where they go, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're, that, that image of the plane, I think, will carry with us forever of the, the full cargo hole, and it just makes you wish that everyone who wanted to be on a plane like that could have been, you know? Yeah, and ironically, they probably could, right? I mean, from the Taliban standpoint, they would rather all these people leave, right? So that they don't have to have the opprobrium of killing them and get becoming a prior state again. They don't want them there in Afghanistan, but they don't want to have to go through that. They're more, the senior Taliban leaders have said, get them out. You know, um, junior Taliban commanders are being assholes on the ground, but like that's what they do, right? You know, um, so if we'd have said, right, we're creating a humanitarian corridor, we're going to guard that with troops, we're going to, everyone that wants to come to this location and we'll then fly you to the airfield by, by helicopter and go from there, you know, potentially it would have been a very different outcome. But it's not over yet. It could be, could get better. But that's, you know, it's pretty chaotic right now. As things were collapsing, it, it just seems like it, it ended up being a complete shit show. Like what happened? Yeah, I, I don't know what the correct Pashtun word for clusterfuck is, right? But that's what <laughs> this is, right? Um, you know, I was a military instructor. You know, I served in the army for 25 years. Uh, I could take any corporal. Uh, or private soldier and say, mate, go plan me an evacuation, right? And the guy would come back with a pretty sensible plan, right? It's pretty logical. If a guy came back to me and said, right, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give up one of my two airfields, right? And then I'm going to pick the one that has only one airstrip that's right in the middle of downtown, and that's going to be the one I'm going to use. And then I'm going to evacuate the military first and then the diplomats, and then somehow, you know, underpants gnomes right the civilians are going to get out and that um you know you would say dude you you're an idiot that you know and and no nco or private would be stupid enough to come up with that plan right i don't know who planned this thing but um you know they deserve to be held accountable when it's over but it, it would have been generals it would have been the generals in washington wouldn't it yeah what, what you find is you get a tug of war between the diplomats and the generals right so probably it was actually colonels working for generals who came up with some kind of a plan and they were already boxed in by decisions that had been made already, like giving up the other airfields. And they tried to come up with the best possible choice. And then the diplomats would have gone, yeah, but, you know, that's going to panic people. It's going to make us look bad. Uh, certainly uh, about a month, uh, about three weeks ago, I, I'm aware of conversations where the diplomats were saying, look, we've got six to 12 months before, you know, Kabul's under threat. We've got plenty of time. So don't worry about it, right? And I think that was a fundamental miscalculation. But, again, like... It's not rocket science, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I am. It, it's embarrassing, right? And whether whether or not you think it's any particular political party's fault, I happen to not think it's a partisan political issue. And whether or not you think that we should have left or should have stayed, and you know, I'm open to debate either way. Either way, if you decide to leave, don't do it like this. I mean, this is just outrageous. I mean, it's just a. It's an outrageous clusterfuck. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I've never heard of anything like it. Um, and it's just, it's embarrassing, right? And more than embarrassing, people are going to get killed because we didn't, we screwed this up. And I think that people should be hanging their heads in shame as a result of that. Thanks for listening. Our gear is from Road Microphones. We're part of the ACAST Creator Network. Another interview tomorrow. See ya. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.